0: Here's what we read in Acts 10, 1 through 8. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Let's stop right there for one second, actually, and we'll we'll just talk about those first two verses. So, Cornelius is a man who we read here is a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God, but he is a centurion of the Italian cohort. So here's what this means, and it's a really, really big deal. He is not a Jewish person. He is part of the government of the Roman Empire, To be a centurion, that was a position you were in charge of about 100 uh, Roman soldiers. The centurions were really good leaders. Uh, You were given this job because your men looked up to you and because they would follow you. You weren't given it because now that you have the title, they will be forced to do what you say. You're given it because they want to do what you say. And so now you're the guy that they should be following. Uh, This means that Cornelius was a person that had a lot of credibility in the mind of the people around him and the Roman government and the Roman Empire and in the military that he served in. He had a family, he had servants, he had people that served under him. And uh, we read that Cornelius is a man who uh, is devout. He fears God and his whole household fears God as well. Uh, There are different kinds of people who interact with, I guess you could say, the Jewish faith. You have the Jews and then you have the proselytes, which are the people who are becoming Jewish. They, they have been won over by the Jewish way of living, the Jewish way of being, and they, uh, they've decided that they want to convert to Judaism. And so because of that, they, um, they go through this whole process, and then eventually, I mean, you've got to really be committed, and they make sure you are, because at the end, you've got to get circumcised. And that's how they know they're really committed, right? So, a, a full fledged uh, proselyte is somebody who is in the process of becoming a Jewish person all the way. They're giving everything to it and they're finishing it off with circumcision. But there are other people. Who are um, well, and then you have people like Hellenist Jews and and Greek Jews. These are the people who are Jewish. They're part of it. They're a part of it just as much as the Jerusalem Jews, but they don't they don't come from the places that are most respected in the Jewish culture. They're part of the dispersion. They speak different languages. So there's kind of this idea that they're not as good as the Jerusalem Jews. Um, the those are really the leaders of the Jewish faith. That's people like Stephen, right? That we read about. Um, people like Philip that we read about who are Jews, but they're Greeks speaking, which is good because now the gospel can go out to people who speak languages other than um, Aramaic and Hebrew, uh, people who are Greek speaking. Well, then you have guys like Cornelius. Cornelius, it says, is devout. It says that he's a man who fears God, and those words mean something very specific and important. Cornelius is a man who wants something that the Jewish faith has, and the result of it is that he's become what the Bible calls a God-fearing man. A God-fearing person, historically, people would often call these people heaven-fearing people because they believed in some invisible God who was in the heavens, so the idea was they were always just like, oh, we care about this, because all the Roman gods and all the other gods were like, you know, earthly and worldly and they represented things here and we, they were in statues, right? And so these, these Jewish people, these atheists who only worship one God, they may as well be atheists. He's invisible, we can't see him, they may as well be atheists. He's up in the heavens somewhere, they may as well be atheists, right? Uh, Cornelius sees something in what they have and what they're doing and because of that, he becomes a, a God or a heaven-fearing man. He becomes somebody that the Bible calls pious or devout. This is somebody who, who wants what they have, but isn't really fully becoming a Jewish person. And there's all kinds of reasons why somebody wouldn't become Jewish, but there's also lots of reasons why somebody would be a God-fearing man. Now, it matters a lot that God comes to Cornelius, that he doesn't come to a Jewish person. He doesn't come to a proselytizing Jew. He doesn't come to somebody who's in the process. He doesn't come to a, a Hellenist, uh, a Greek-speaking Jew, or anybody like that. You see, since, uh, since the beginning of the Jewish people, since the, since the beginning of them being on the earth, God creating his people, the Jewish people have historically been sort of picked on. Uh, in fact, you probably associate uh, the idea of the Jews or the Jewish people with stereotypes, right? Because historically, the Jews have been lumped together, which is how God wanted it, right? God was very clear with his people. He said, I want you to be distinct, right? I want you to be different from the people around you, which means when you're invaded from other cultures, I want you to not let their ways become your ways. When you conquer other lands, I want you to destroy everything because I want you to make sure that your faith in me isn't influenced by the faith that other people have. And what we see through the Israelites is that every time they get astray, they go astray, it's because they've decided you know, we kind of like the way these people do it better. We kind of like their God better, even them getting a king is uh, is ultimately like, uh, well, they have kings, so God, maybe we could use a king. Maybe just having a God over us isn't good enough. God said, remain distinct, be distinct, and because they're distinct because they fight so hard to be different, no matter what group they're a part of and where they're amongst, people like to pick on them. They like to lump them together and say, "Oh, the Jewish people, oh the Jews are like this, and like this, and like this, and people mock them. People, uh, you know, people also blame the problems of society upon them. I mean, we're so familiar with this because of the Nazis in World War II. Tragically, when, when, a, when, a, when a group of people find that they can blame their problems on another group of people, then they have a justification, they think, to get rid of them. Well, the Jewish people have often been that group. They've often been the ones picked on and bullied, the ones blamed for things. In fact, the first time that I ever said the words, uh, the Jews, in front of my son, he looked at me like I said a bad word. He was like, you're not supposed to say that about people. You're not supposed to call them that. And I was like, yeah, that, that, I mean, it is true that, um, that, that even saying the Jews, right, what, what, even those words um, seem uh, wrong to us. They seem harsh or mean. They seem prejudiced or stereotyping. Why? Because that, that group and, and, and that phrase even being used during World War II a lot, we, we associate it with that. Uh, the, the point is this. Um, historically speaking, it's very widely agreed upon that the Jewish people, are looked down upon, are stereotyped against, are mocked, are alienated, and are, uh, are basically forced to suffer for the benefit of other groups of people. But something else that is historically noted and documented that is so important is that the same groups of Jewish people are also at the same time admired. And they grow in number. There's this question historians have been trying to answer for thousands of years, and the question is this, how is it that so many people would mock the Jewish people, and yet they would be so successful at gaining adherence, at gaining followers? Why would so many people become God-fearers? Why would so many people look at them and say, I want what it is that you have? Why would they gain so many proselytes, If nothing else, when you got to get circumcised, that's not, I mean, because some have said like, oh, well, it must be easy. It must be convenient. It must benefit the people somehow. Well, how is that? Becoming a part of the group that everyone mocks and at the end of it, you have to get circumcised. That's not easy. That's not something that, you know, that's not a great sales pitch. And yet their numbers had continued to grow. It's because that people also, as crazy as it sounds, have admired the Jews since God first formed his people. People have looked at the Jewish people, the Israelites, and they have said, uh, we admire things about them. And the things that they've admired have mattered. Uh, The first thing that people have admired about the Jewish people is their antiquity. Uh, The Greek culture, uh, the Roman world, uh, these these are civilizations and groups of people and governments that are relatively young in the grand scheme of things. And they know that they're young. And this is a time when being old, having roots, having history, having tradition is actually seen as a very validating thing. It's a good thing. And so people in these governments looked at the Jewish people and said, they have been around for this long. They have, they, have, they have existed as a people for this long. And that antiquity somehow gave them some kind of validity. It's like finding a dusty old book and blowing off the dust and opening it up and reading things that are still true today but were written so long ago. Maybe they're written like a cool old language and you go, oh, there's, there's obviously something to this because it's old and yet it still seems relevant. This is really hard for us to wrap our minds around because I think, I think nowadays due to the uh, progress of scientific invention and discovery, we tend to presume that old things are bad and new things are good. And so if something comes along that is new, even a new belief system, we believe, uh, well, it's probably based on better evidence, better revelation or, 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 you know, information, and the old things are probably outdated and should be ignored. But the people at this time and people throughout time have admired the Jewish people because they have such historic roots in the things that they do. People also admired the Jewish people for their wisdom for the truth that they lived by. These are the people with the wisdom of the Proverbs. These are the people with the wisdom of Solomon. Um, Anybody who takes a class on philosophy is going to learn about Greek philosophy. Well, the Greeks in the Roman Empire, these people, many of them admired the Jewish people and their wisdom. They called them philosophers by birth. And what that means is that if you were a part of the Jewish faith, then chances are you were forced to think deeply about very big things your entire life. Their, their faith system was based on, on trying to understand and explain very complex things, very difficult things, and philosophers love that. Uh, Philosophers, you may not know this, have a pretty high opinion of themselves usually. If you've ever had a friend in college who's a philosopher, they're like, oh, you're studying math? Oh, you're going to be a teacher? Oh, you're in business? That's great. I'm only answering the most important questions in the universe, so, yeah, that's fine. You know, I'm only figuring out the things that man has longed to know since the beginning of time. It's okay. I'm only figuring out the fabric of reality. That's, That's, yeah, but you can go make money, and I'll just be the guy that actually knows all the answers to things, right? Uh, so, for philosophers to refer to a group of people as philosophers by birth, even when they disagree with them, that says a lot. It says that people looked at the Jewish people at the time and they said they have wisdom. They have real wisdom. It's not just like they're going around doing whatever feels good and believing things that don't make sense and can't be articulated, can't be defended, can't be explained. The Jewish people also had virtue, and people admired them for their virtue. They were people of temperance. They were people of morality, people of moderation. They did not eat things because they believed they were impure and unclean. They did not drink to excess. They did not participate in the orgies that people participated in. They were not uh, known for being greedy, but rather people who gave away and sacrificed, You know, like your, your, your ability to have respect and honor in the Jewish culture had a lot to do with you, maybe your generosity and your willingness to, to, to be that kind of a person. Uh, So, uh, people would look at the Jewish, uh, those of the Jewish faith, and they would say, man, they have a lot of virtue, and we really admired that about them. In fact, they had so much virtue, they were seen so well, that the Jews who were often being conquered by other people, their laws, their customs, their ways of living would actually influence the conquerors often more than the other way around. Uh, one person uh, who wrote, uh, Seneca wrote in 50 AD this about them, and he kind of says this in in jest. He didn't like them. He says, the vanquished have given laws to their victors. That's how he describes the ways that the Jewish people have influenced those who won. He's like, these guys won, but the losers are still giving their laws to them. That's not how it works. When you get conquered, they give you their laws. They say, now you follow our rules, and you follow our customs, and you become like us because we beat you. But people who took over the Jewish, the, the Hebrew promised land, people who, who lived amongst these, uh, these people, the Jews, they would often see virtue in them and say, we want to base our laws off of the very things that these people believe. The Jews are admired for their courage. Uh, I, could, I could talk a lot more about this because, uh, and I won't, but basically the fathers of the faith alone, were considered some of the greatest historical figures of courage that there were. Uh, I mean, most leaders at the time who were great leaders were great leaders because they killed lots of people in battle, because they, they used force uh, to subject, su- subjugate other people to their will. They were out for themselves. There was not much noble or courageous about them, it seemed. They were just willing to use other people and, and, and make them fight their battles for them. Whereas the Jewish people had leaders like Moses, people like Abraham, men who were known for sacrifice, even people, uh, and, and Moses above all, above all the other leaders of the Jewish faith, Moses was widely respected, not just inside the Jewish faith, but outside of the Jewish faith as well. People talked about Moses um, as, uh, as this great figure, sort of like the way that people talk about Mother Teresa, who aren't Catholic, right? We, we all acknowledge that Mother Teresa is like this incredibly humble, give sacrificial saint of a person we even talk about being a mother Teresa type of a person even if you don't believe what she did that's how a lot of people felt about guys like Moses and guys like Abraham guys like Joseph even guys like Joshua uh, people believed that the courage that it took to lead uh, the Israelites out of Egypt, the courage it takes for these people to keep trying to follow these same customs, even though they get persecuted for it, even though they get taken over uh, again and again. People looked at the Jews and said, man, they get beat up a lot. They get taken down a lot. But, man, they're, they're brave. They're brave people. And people admired them for their courage, and it made people become God-fearers. People admired them because of their justice, The Jewish law in the Old Testament is something that is, it is one of the greatest sort of examples of of law that we have in the world. People look at it who don't want to be Jewish, who don't agree with the Jewish theology, and still look at it and say, what you have in, uh, in the law that God gave his people is an amazing, amazing thing. And what you see it what you see in it is something based on a just God. This is a law that is based on a God who never changes, and who will clearly say without fear or shame, this is what is good, this is what is evil, this is what is right, this is what is wrong, right? Uh, The Jews are people who, who believe in some of their wisdom and their proverbs and their principles are things that lead to such justice that those who want to form governments, who want to understand better the law and the way men ought to be governed, would look to the Jewish Old Testament and would say, those people, we admire them for the justice that they have. Uh, the last thing that they were admired for was their piety. And, and and piety is different from virtue. Virtue is like you look at a virtuous person, and you go, they're just a good person, right? The things they do, they're just a good person. They maybe don't even have to try that hard to be a good person. Piety is when you actually give of yourself sacrifice to do things. They're usually religious things in nature. And you do it because you know it's the right thing to do and you know that you should. You know it brings honor to God. Piety is like a person who is known for going to church every single week, right? Piety is somebody who follows the rules because it's what God says to do, right? Piety is a person who gives to the poor, who gives alms, not just because there are poor people, but because the Bible says to do it, right? Uh, One of the biggest attractions to the Jewish way of life was the idea of a Sabbath, the idea of a day of rest, the idea that you take one day out and you rest And that God actually wants you to do that. That God doesn't say, oh, I'm the God of work until you're dead, and uh, that's what I want. Um, That would be a great God for governments to say, worship this God, because our people will work harder. They won't take days off and be lazy. But the Jews believed in the Sabbath, dedicating an entire day to rest and to worship of God. And their piety is one of the things that drew people to them. There were so many reasons why people wanted what the Jewish people had. And historians refer to this thing that happens with a, with a religion like this as a drift. They say it's kind of a drift effect, which is, yeah, you have your like a one and done, you're like black to white, like, like a light switch, total full conversion happening in the moment. Everything changes and the person's life is sold out from then on. You have those kinds of conversions, yes, You have the proselytes who are like clearly on the path of becoming like validated in this religion. But then you have all the other people who just kind of get attracted to it and get drawn by it. You have the fact that you go, man, when you put the Jews in the middle of something, they influence that thing more, it seems, than the thing influences them. And what they call that influence is the drift. They say that people begin to drift towards the Jewish way of life slowly. Uh, one um, humorist, I guess is what he would have been called. He's a satirist, which is like a comedian. In the, uh, in the second century, his name is Juvenal. He says this, he describes this drift in this way, and he doesn't really like the Jewish people, so he's kind of trying to mock them. He says, some who have had a father who reveres the Sabbath, worship nothing but the clouds and the divinity of the heavens and see no difference between eating swine flesh from which their fathers abstained, and that of man, and in time, they take to circumcision. What he's saying is, he's saying there are people. He's saying that this is generational, and this is usually how it happened. It, it, what would happen is your father would say, "We're going to church. We're going to the temple, or we're going to start to we're going to start to have a day of rest, and we're going to start to sort of worship God um, as these Jewish people do. Why? Because they worshipped one God who never changed. They worshipped a God who had a a set of laws and ways of living that were clear and easy to understand. He was predictable." You didn't have to, like, sacrifice tons of people and hope that it would rain because he wasn't furious at you or something mysterious like that. This God was very clear, right? And so, so, the, so your dad would say, we're going to go worship um, at the temple. We're going to go take a day of rest and a Sabbath day. And then he would, he would probably also at some point say, you know, we're going to follow these dietary laws because we think that they make sense. We think they're good. We're not going to eat swine, Right. Um, we're not going to eat pig. And then maybe that would be it. But then you would grow up in that, and you would see the sense of that, and you'd be around the Jewish people, so you might be somebody who went all the way to the point of circumcision. So what Juvenal's is saying here is in the second century is he's saying this is what happened. Generation after generation, people got closer to Yahweh, got closer to the Jewish way of living over time because they were God-fearers, because they were attracted to it. God knew exactly what he was doing when he made himself known through an entire nation and a culture of people. God knew exactly what he was doing when he told those people, do not change the way that you live no matter who you are living amongst because they will see me through you. The truth is that uh, many of us have been converted, have had conversions that are radical and spontaneous and instantaneous, and everything has changed from that point on. I I had a conversion like that. And and when I came back from a summer camp, my parents said, and still say to this day, that old person was truly gone when Ed came back. But many, maybe even most, Most of you, most people that I talk with, I think, it is much more of a drift. It is a drift towards God. You you see truth in something. You you have assumed truth. I mean, the Bible tells us that God's evident in nature. He he manifests himself and makes himself known to us, right? Like, there are are things about God that we can see, that we can perceive. And so many have gradually, over the course of, of even a lifetime, gotten closer and closer and closer and closer to God and the people of God. They have drifted towards him. And the truth is, this is often how conversion happens. It's hard, it's hard for, for devout Christians to understand this a lot of times. It's hard for devout people not to just get mad when they encounter what they see as lukewarm people or people who are struggling in the faith. Uh, One of the things that as a pastor I have found myself doing much more is helping people answer hard questions as they're on that journey. I find myself doing that much more than people asking me to uh, give them uh, more sermons and information on the things they know now that they firmly believe. And that's because there are so many on this journey of belief and faith and yet struggling through it that what uh, even we as God's people are called to be is not just ones that say, Here's the gospel, here's the message, now choose it, and that's all I can tell you. Or come to church, and if you do, I expect you to follow all of our rules and live all of our ways and be exactly like us, and if not, I'm going to judge you, or I'm going to say, hey, we got to keep this place pure. we got to keep this place good, right? we got to keep those people out. Uh, they're lukewarm, right? They're bad. Instead of saying that to realize that, that what we ought to want is people who are drifting, even if they're not as devout as maybe we think we are, as pious as we are, as virtuous as we are. The truth was the people who admired the Jews and have done that, the virtuous people, the ones that cared about virtue, admired the virtues of the Jews. The, the philosophers, the deep thinkers, the ones who answer the big questions in life, they would admire the Jewish people as philosophers by birth. Those who cared about justice and about law could not ignore the beauty and the logic and the sense that was the Old Testament law. Uh, those that cared about uh, things like piety, things like, uh, things like living uh, well and rightly, uh, saw these things in the Jewish people. And so, even while they were being mocked and ridiculed and persecuted by everyone at the same time, God comes to Cornelius, this man who is devout, and here's what he says to him. If we start in verse uh, 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly a vision, an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror, and he said, what is it, Lord? for Peter to go to this man's house, for a, non, for a Jewish person to go into a Gentile's home, especially to eat with them, stay with them, do anything with them, we know that that is against the rules. It is not something that they're supposed to do. And so Peter should say to this guy, say to the people that come to him, uh, yeah, sorry, but no thanks. Maybe we'll meet at a Starbucks or something, but no thanks. I can't come to your house. I don't want to defile myself and I don't want to break God's laws. So we read next uh, what happens. Now, first of all, he said that he was uh, staying with someone. In the last passage we read, um, God told Cornelius, he said that he is, uh, he is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. Okay, so really quickly, kind of fun fact. A tanner is a person who, he's not talking about full house. A tanner is the person who uh, works with leather. They work with animal hides. And because uh, uh, this other Peter, this other uh, is it Peter or Simon? Uh, because this other Simon, uh, the tanner, um, because he works with animal skin and animal flesh, it means he's unclean. So according to Jewish law and custom, he is, uh, this guy, uh, the tanner is unclean. That's why he lives by the sea. He lives kind of far away from where all the rest of the people are. He has to live far away from the, from the sort of populated area so that he doesn't make other people impure. Uh, but Peter's staying with him. So, Peter's already staying with somebody who people consider to be impure, unclean. And this is important. It means that Peter's already starting himself to sort of drift. Is he drifting in a bad way? Uh, No, because we know where the church is headed. Where the church is headed is rather than to make the net smaller, it is to make it bigger, right? So, God's already working in Peter and making him say, "Uh, I have a heart for and I'm okay with being around these people, and I believe that God's okay with it. Two, I can be amongst the unclean Jews, and it's still honoring to God. So here's what happens with Peter. We read in verse 9, the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop and the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. What God says to Peter is he says in this vision, I have made this food clean now. I've changed the rules, so don't call it unclean anymore. God is changing the rules. That is a big deal. That's not something that we're usually supposed to do. Uh, In case you don't know, um, the things that God tells us we're supposed to do in the Bible— it's important that we not change those things. There's a difference, guys, between good and evil and clean and unclean. God does not change the things that are good, the things that are evil. But there's a difference between uh, you shall not murder And this is a cultural custom. And what God is doing is he is saying, time is changing. I have formulated, I formed a group of people to reach the world, and now we're expanding it even more. Now, in order to become a part of my kingdom, you don't have to become a Jewish person anymore. You don't have to follow the Jewish customs. You can be a part of any nation. You can be a part of any people group. You can... uh, You can still be a part of my kingdom without becoming a Jew. This is like the craziest thing ever. This is something that that the church is going to struggle to wrap their minds around because the church, up till this point, is nothing but Jewish people. If you want to become Close to God. If you want to be with God, you have to become a part of this group. Since man, since the beginning, we have always struggled with this concept. European, uh, European settlers and pilgrims who came across uh, to America would fail in, in the for, for so long in their missionary attempts to Native Americans because uh, the majority of, of the first earliest missionaries uh, took the approach that, uh, that nature is evil, it has to be tamed. And these, these Native Americans, these, these savages, they called them, were people who first needed to adopt European ways before they could ever adopt a European god. So to them, to these missionaries, you had to start wearing clothes and cut your hair and learn English and start doing all these things that made you Western or that made you European, um, because that was how you became a Christian. They also, uh, turns out, were very good at ignoring the fact that these Native Americans actually knew how to live here, which is why wave after wave of early coloner and settlers, settler died in the winter, because we thought the way they made, they planted their food was weird. We thought the way that they took care of themselves was weird. We thought there was nothing to be gained from them. Our message was always you have to become one of us first and then you can become a Christian. I have a friend who God called him to ministry in South Central Los Angeles. And he was, a, he was a white guy and he got called to plant a church in South Central. And he said that for the first couple of years that he was doing that, he noticed so many things that were that as he became a part of the African American community, he, he saw like a sort of a deeper sense of community. He saw that people were warmer, that people were often more communal, that people were often more generous, that there were, there were so many benefits. Um, so many differences from being in the white communities he had been in before. But then he also talked about how, like, he would set up a time to meet with somebody over the Bible and they'd be late. And then he would do it again, they'd be late again. Sometimes they wouldn't even show up. And it would annoy him. And so, as he discipled men, as he discipled people, he also tried to teach them how to be punctual, how to be on time. He tried to say, This is something that matters to God. And, and it wasn't, and there, and there were all of these subtle ways that he found himself starting to try to make people like, him the way that he lived his life the way that he did things his values and sort of sh- sort of saying to them well if you want god then you have to become like this and what what he came to repent of a few years in was he said i was a i was a i was a white guy coming into an african american community and in my mind i thought they have to become like me, they have to act like me and live like me and have the same values as a white person in order to really be a Christian and really take God seriously. And he had to repent of that and realize that is not what I'm here to do. I'm not here to make these people like me. The people of God will now come from all cultures. They will come from all groups. And the thing about this that is so hard, and this is like, I know that this is a long message, I know that there's a lot here, but this here, right here, right now, is the part of it that we all have to make sure that we get. When God does this, it is black and it is white. There is no gray. And what that means is when God comes and he says, this is no longer unclean, this is no longer wrong. Or when he clarifies for us, this never was wrong, that was never something that I told you needed to happen. When God communicates that there, is, that there is what is good and there is what is bad, when he communicates that to us, there are no gray areas in between, which is very hard for us because what we do is we have a very hard time accepting when God tells us that something isn't wrong, that we want to be wrong. We want to be able to hold people to this or say that thing is more spiritual or this is kind of more Christian because that's what the church did. Would you believe that the church, the early church struggled more over food than anything else? That this issue of food, there's a reason that God had to do it this way. I mean, if you read through the rest of this chapter, God came to Peter and he said this thing to him and Peter had to recount it to people in a certain way that so many miraculous things had to happen to make it clear that God was changing things because people would fight it so much. People would fight the food issue more than any other thing. That in churches throughout, and you would read about it in the New Testament, there's no single issue that gets pointed to as an issue of disunity more than some brothers, it says, eating meat and some abstaining from meats, uh, sacrificed or offered to sacrifices as sacrifices. I mean, Paul talks about it and says, you know, don't do something that causes your brother to stumble. Basically, he says, listen, if you go to somebody's house and they still are abstaining from meat, then just abstain from meat while you're with them because I, I don't care, and, and if they go to your house, and, uh, and if you know maybe that they abstain from meat, then maybe you don't have to eat it at your house in front of them. And to those people that abstain, and you know that these people don't, then don't try to make them feel guilty about it, and don't think that you can hold it over their head. Don't, don't, don't try to point out or make it an issue, which is exactly what happened. You see, it is so hard for us to believe two things. One, that this is a black and white issue, which it is. And two, that, there is, uh, that it is immediate. That the effect of it is immediate. And what that means is, do you know how many people in the church wanted to say at this time, uh, how many people like Peter would have wanted to say, okay, fine, God, we get it. You're changing things now. You're loosening them now. You want, you want things to be different for future generations. We get that. But let's take it slow, right? let's take it slow. Let's just take it baby steps, one step at a time, right? Uh, let's signal before you turn, as they say in leadership, right? Let's, uh, let's just take it real easy because uh, we don't want it to be too hard for people. We don't want it to be too painful for people to have to let go of this thing or this expectation or this standard that they have so long associated with being a good, faithful uh, part of God's kingdom, and so what we want to do is we want to take things like this and we want to say, let's just slow it way down and say that over the next few generations that we'll really work on this, okay? And, uh, and what God expects from Peter and what the leaders of the church will ultimately expect from the church is, guys, if we see this happening, if we see you still acting like this is a matter of clean and unclean, then we're going to call you on it right then. Because when God says that something is clean, it's clean you don't get to add something else to that. And we are so good at this, right? We're so good at creating the gray areas and and expecting that it just, the timing has to be different. We're so good at going, no, 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 I get it, God. I get it, I get it. It's not clean. But I mean, I think we can all admit, right, that, you know, it's better, right? I mean, it's better if you can, if you can do it, right? I mean, if you can avoid eating it, right? I mean, why not, right? Isn't that better? That's still better. These people still need to, you know, it would be nice if they could be Jewish. Okay, oh, okay, fine, 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 fine. We don't have to make them Jewish. That's okay, that's okay. But like, let's agree, right, that the Jewish people are, are more spiritual. We, we, we see more, we know more. We have a better history with all this stuff, right? We're, we're still at least kind of the experts, right? It is so easy to go out with a message and want people to believe it when that message is one that you're in control. You're the best. And they can never get to that level. There's no threat there. There's no possibility that anybody but you will be in charge or be in control of it. And the reality is that there are so many ways that in the church we have taken things and that we have elevated them and made them spiritual. We've made them matters of maturity that we have said God wants it to be this way. And that as we've done that, that we might even admit, oh, no, 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 I'm not saying it's a sin. No, no, no I'm not saying, I'm not going to argue. I'm just saying, I think we can all agree it's, it's probably better. It's better. It's the way it is. In fact, if nothing else, how many people from this point on in the church would find themselves saying to their friends, to other people, don't you miss when? The dietary laws were a thing. Don't you miss when the customs were still there? Don't you miss when it was just Jewish people? Wasn't it just so much better and easier? Wasn't it such a different environment, a different place? Wasn't it so nice then? I mean, I'm not saying that it's not the way God wants it now, but I just, would, don't, don't you miss when uh, we knew more clearly, you know, what was good, what was bad, who was good, who was bad? We want so hard to believe that there are gray areas in this. We want so hard to believe that uh, as long as we take it very, 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 very slow, usually meaning uh, somebody else has to deal with this change, not me, then, uh, then maybe we can handle it. And, and what God is saying to Peter and what Peter ultimately says we read in verse 34 and 35 which takes us all the way to the end of the chapter this is Peter, he goes and he goes to Cornelius' house and these men welcome him in and he goes in. He goes in and he accepts their invitation even though they're Gentiles and he's a Jew. He sits with them and he tells them about the vision that he had and he, he does something incredible. He preaches the gospel to them. And as he preaches the gospel to them, he says to them um, the truth of Jesus and they receive it and they respond. And as he preaches it to them, this is what he says. He says that we we read in Peter opened his mouth and he said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. In any nation, any person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. The net has officially been widened, and as the church now moving forward is going to begin to struggle from this point on in Acts, we are going to be not in uh, the we're not in the place that we have been in before. We are now, from this point on, going to be uh, walking through Acts alongside a church that is going crazy with exactly what's happening here. They are going to be dealing constantly with the fact that things are now changing. But what would eventually happen is that there would be two groups in most churches, those that liked the meat and those that didn't. And Paul and others are constantly going to be telling them again and again, stop judging the other group of people and thinking that you're more holy than they are, right? I, I hesitate to get super specific about this because when you get specific, then we get defensive, right? When, when I, if I talk about something that's close to your heart or matters a lot to you, then it's easy for you to go, oh gosh, I don't want to hear that. But the truth is, I, there is no way that I can talk about this without talking about the tendency that we have to do this in the church, especially um, when it comes to, well, the things that matter the most to all of us. You know, would it, you know, would it surprise you to know that people have left the church before over something as simple as music? Would it surprise you to know that people are currently leaving our church because of music, because of styles of music and things changing? Uh, so how is it then that we could make decisions as big as whether or not we're a part of a community, maybe one we've been a part of for a long time? Uh, based on something like music that um from what I can tell is not a spiritual issue there isn 't a point when the Bible says it is sinful to do this, but not this. Uh, this worship style is better than this worship style. This one is more godly than this. this one is more spiritually real than this right the bible doesn't say that we don 't have any indication of that in fact, if you wanted to go to like really the most biblical form of worship, there'd be well it, it would not be something probably anybody here would enjoy so like Why is it that with things that are not spiritual issues, that God has not spoken on, that we can still often be so divided? I mean, one of the things that we've said in our church recently is that we've come to realize that, you know, we have these two different, we've had these two different services um, based on worship style for a while, that we've had our traditional and our sort of a modern service. And um, and it's totally true, by the way, that if you if you talk to, you know, there's going to be extremes in every situation, but if, if I were to pull somebody out of one, and they're like the most diehard extreme, like, I love this, and I could never worship in any other kind of a worship service. If you were to take that person and then take somebody out of the other service who says, I love this, and I would never worship in any any other kind of service. I couldn't even imagine doing it. Chances are they would look at the other and say, oh, that person is not as holy as me, right? The thing I don't like about the way that they worship, that makes me more spiritually mature than them, better than them, right? And in the same way that you had the church, you had these people with meat, these people with no meat, and all Paul's telling them is like, just stop judging each other and stop thinking you're better than each other. Stop looking down on each other. It's exactly the kind of thing that we can have the tendency to do. Should the political party that people are in matter as a part of being in the church? Is there one party that's more Christian than the other political party? Now, even as I say this, some of you might be like, the fact that you would even ask that question I'm officially now gone or something from this church, right? Well, hold on a second because when we read in the New Testament in the lists of sins that are given, right? In like, like Corinthians where, uh, where Paul lists out the different types of sins of the flesh, you know, you always can divide these things up into two categories. You have the liberal sins, you have the conservative sins, right? You have the sins that, uh, that those who are more liberally minded find so offensive. Uh, and then you have the sins that more conservative people would say, I can't believe someone would do that. But the fact is, it is so easy for us to ignore one half of the list and then pay attention to the other half. We have a tendency to, uh, to hold up sexual immorality so much higher than greed right? Even though the Bible doesn't do that and it's listed out in the sins as equal with one another. But do we believe that there is one viewpoint, one perspective, one party that is more Christian than another? That you can't, I mean, you can't really be like a real person of God, of his kingdom, if you, you know, believe what that group believes, should your clothing, should your language, should your family of origin, even where you come from, should those things really matter, is one more Christian than the other? Even the fact that in the church, we have this tendency of seeing ourselves as incomplete if we're not married, we don't have kids. I know that we do this to ourselves as much as other people do. I mean, I, I, most people I know who feel incomplete because they're not married, who feel incomplete because they don't have kids, they feel that way partly because they want it so bad. They, they, they feel it themselves. It's not other people telling them that. But it is also true that like if as a pastor, let's say I was uh, I was single, I didn't have any kids, uh, that it might be difficult to look at me and say, oh, do, do we believe in some way that he's as spiritually mature as somebody who has got this kind of a relationship that I can relate to, right? Or who's gone through parenting children like maybe the ones that I have. Um, although I can guarantee you my kids uh, are nothing like yours. They're probably uh, uh, more of a handful, we'll say. Um, you, you know, we look at these things and we say, um, if if this person isn't like me, or if they don't exhibit the the, the values and some of the traditions that I have, then uh, that I don't know that they're as spiritually. Uh, you know, mature. I don't know that they're really as close to God. I, I've talked with people who have, who have kind of in veiled ways, sort of implied, like, well, because you didn't grow up in the church and have a good experience in the church, then you are kind of at a disadvantage um, because you don't understand like how good it is, you know, um, rather than um, seeing it as simply that is one way to come to Christ, just like there are other ways. It is easy to want people to be a part of something in order for them to become a Christian. It is easy for us to take the things that we care about, that we find our identity in, that we are comfortable with, our favorite things, and to say this is what it really means to be a Christian. And as God is now doing away with the dietary laws and doing away with having to become Jewish in order to become Christian, a radical transformation is happening in the church. God goes on to make it so clear that this is exactly what he wants. We read about it at the end in verse 44. We read, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So, as Peter is preaching the gospel to them and they are receiving it, God wants to make it perfectly clear. And, and again, we've said this before, that one of the things that you see in the Holy Spirit coming upon people in Acts is it's, it's primarily this sort of like baptism of the Holy Spirit, this descending of the Holy Spirit, the speaking in tongues, the fire, the languages, all that stuff, that most of the time what that is is It's something that God does to show the legitimacy of these people now believing in him. And it was necessary because so often a new group would come to faith and he knew, God knew that all the people in the church would be like, eh, I'm not really sure, maybe they're getting there, but I'm not really sure that it's, how do I know that they believe? How do I know that they really have faith? Let's make them eat the, the, do the dietary laws, right? Let's get them circumcised, then we'll really know. God wants to get rid of all of that, and he says, oh, you're gonna know that these people are following me, that they have my blessing. You'll know because the the Holy Spirit will come upon them, and it will cause them to do miraculous things, and it will show, just like the Hellenist Jews he did uh, when they were being preached to, it will show that my spirit's with them. You cannot deny it. You cannot take it away from them. Here's the thing. God expanding the net should be the greatest thing ever to all of us. It should be such good news because it means that many of the things that we thought people needed to do and to be like and to change into in order to be a part of God's kingdom, they don't. But the hard truth is that most who are currently believers, currently a part of the church, especially if you're really steeped in it, is this is actually more of a scary thing. This is more bad news than anything else. Because what it means is it means having to let go of the things that are not actually spiritual, the things that are not a part of the gospel, that are not a part of what it it still means to be one of God's people. And it is hard for us to let go of those things. We cannot expect other people to be like us in order to be saved. We cannot expect other people to look like us and act like us and to sing the way we do and dress the way that we do to believe all the same things that we do. In fact, like any good parent who is watching a child leave their home, we have to be able to ask ourselves the question, what do I really, really want to make sure that they have gotten down? And what am I willing to let go of in order to make sure those things happen? Those are called traditions. Traditions are things that we pass on to others, the future generations. And what you know, if you are serious about passing on traditions, is that if what we want is to pass on traditions, then we have to ask ourselves what the ones are that we're willing to fight for and what the ones are that we're willing to let go of. Because much of the time, well, it is just the way that we work. You can't focus on everything. You can't can't expect people to take everything that you offer them, Uh, just like you can't expect your kids to be a carbon copy of you, even though many of us, that's kind of secretly what we wish for. This is hard. It requires grace. I bring up these specifics about it because not to, like, you know, chastise people who are struggling right now, even with what's going on in our church uh with the transition and worship and everything but because i want us to see and understand that it is very easy for us to kind of wiggle out of what God does here by saying, oh, if only it went a little slower, if only it was a little bit different, or we introduce a gray area. We say, well, I know that God doesn't say that people should do this. I know God doesn't say that this thing should be as important as I'm saying it is, but, you know, we all kind of know that there is some gray area here, and it is kind of better, and I just know that that's that's what I want to be like. That as long as we think that, that we're, that we're off base from what God does here. As we worship again and as we reflect on this, I know this has been a long, this has been a very long message. Um, I, I have, tried to get this down and condense it as much as possible, but I felt that it was so vital that we really understand what it means to be a God-fearer, what it means to be someone who is drifting towards God, and that we be excited about that happening too, and that we understand that God is using this man, Cornelius, someone who probably most of the church rejected, to begin to open up the eyes of the church leaders. May we be a church of people, a a, a group of people who are more willing to look in at ourselves and say, how does God want to change me than we are to look at everybody else outside the walls of the church and say, how does God want to change them? Obviously, God wants them to hear his gospel. Obviously, he wants them to be changed fundamentally. But God doesn't intend to just make them into being just like us. Let's pray. Father, you're so good to us, you, it is so true that the things that are true of you, that the things that are true of your kingdom, that these things are ultimately um, timeless, God that people can look at our faith and the things that we believe and they can see the wisdom, they can see the virtue, they can see uh, the, uh, and they can want to be drawn to it and drift towards it, Lord. Uh, We are so grateful for how much you are um, pursuing each and every one of us, God. Father, our prayer is that we would be able to do what uh, Peter does, that we would be able to hear your voice, And that if there are any things that we're holding on to, things that we are loyal to, things that we are attached to, things that we tend to wrap up with spirituality and maturity that shouldn't be that way, God, would you give us the ability to let those things go and to truly say, God, I want to be excited about those who can come to hear the gospel who don't have those things. God, it's in your name that we pray, amen.